This is Out in the Open, where we take a look into disability, intimacy, sex, relationships, kink, and wherever else it may lead us. I'm Jared, a disability kinkster, gender fluid queer advocate, my co-host and Hal on Wheels, Oliver, a sex-positive kinky ally who's an advocate for disability and sex. We have a guest speaker in each episode talking to us about topics related to sexuality and disability and everything in between. Welcome to Out in the Open. We have uh, a guest today. Their name is Luca, and I will get Luca in a minute to introduce themselves. I'm also here with my co-host, Oliver. Hey, Ollie. Hey. How are you, mate? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah, had a good good week so far? Yeah, pretty good. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, Luca, would you like to introduce yourself, please, and also explain to us and the audience your pronouns or anything else that we need to know as well? Yep. Yeah, um, hi, I'm Luca. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Um, I am currently in Victoria. I'm in lockdown, as most of us are. I'm a, a cancer survivor of 12 years um, from Ewing sarcoma. And I guess I'm here to talk about that and how it's affected everything since. Can you explain to us a little bit about that and what it is? Also, how you dealt with it, if you had any problems, things like that. I also, I think I remember you in a previous text message, you were talking about that the relationships that you had. You're you're polyamorous, is that correct? Yeah, I'm polyamorous. I'm... um, also pan so it's very very much free love as long as everyone is in agreement and knows what's going on beautiful beautiful okay luca could you please just explain to us a little bit about what you've um dealt with and how you survived and all that yeah so ewing sarcoma itself is a bone tumor it's predominantly in young boys and it occurs during a growth spurt. From what we know, it occurs, it's a mutation during a growth spurt. So being diagnosed at 19, I was a bit older than most. And it was in my femur, my knee and my surrounding tissue. I went through 14 rounds of chemotherapy, five different chemos. And after the first four rounds, I had limb salvage surgery. They gave me the option between amputation or a new surgery that was just starting to happen. And I thought, like, why not try to save my leg? And also, if it doesn't work, maybe help other people down the track by trialing it on me. So, yeah, I opted for the limb limb salvage, which meant that they removed the majority of my femur, my knee, a part of my tibia, the muscle and tissue surrounding my femur and replaced that all with a really big, heavy prosthesis, in, but internal. So nothing can be seen from the outside. It looks like I have a proper functioning leg apart from a huge scar and some um, indentation from where the muscle was removed. But apart from that, it looks great. It just it doesn't feel great, but it works. The treatment was a year up all around. I was very, very lucky with my family support and friends. I had a very close support system during that. I was very reluctant to let anyone else into it. At the start, I had a 70% chance of surviving, but that sort of got lowered and lowered as they found out more about my cancer because every tumor is different and reacts different. 
so that sort of started to drop and drop and drop. And as I, as those numbers were dropping, I just wanted to keep the people that already loved me close and not let anyone else love me because I wasn't sure how long I would have. That must have been a very um, scary and hard time for you to go through that. Can I ask what age were you again? I was 19, so I just turned 19. I'd been, I think it had been, looking back, like the tumour had been growing for years. It's a very slow growing. My Ewing's was very slow growing and the tumour size was about this, what would that be, the size of a, it's it's quite quite large. Um, yeah, I would probably say more like of the size of a pawpaw, wouldn't it? It's like roughly, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's a good way, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. So filling most of my leg, but very slowly over the years. So I was getting sicker and sicker. And, but I was just so used to feeling sick that I didn't realize, like, because it happened so slowly, I thought that that's just how everyone felt. Yep. Um, until the pain started. And that was the pain was what got me to go into the doctors over and over and over and say, no, something is wrong. And I really had to advocate for myself and fight for a diagnosis because the doctors did not believe me. They did not believe that my pain was real. They convinced me that it was all in my head. And they didn't even order an x-ray or a blood test. It was She just said that I was addicted to the painkillers despite never having opiates. Like I was born and raised hippie. Like I maybe got an aspirin for a really bad migraine, but it was more remedy oil, like uh, <laughs> have some water and have a nap. That's it was really, a bit- really shocking. That's really, really sad to hear that. You hear a lot of that every day. Yeah, they don't believe you. It's definitely not rare, um, this type of diagnosis, like taking so long, particularly as like I presented as a healthy 19-year-old. I could walk properly. I didn't have a limp. There was no swelling. Most of the pain was at night. So after a few months of the doctor saying this, I was like, I am, I am going crazy and I am making this up. Like I am somehow creating this agonizing pain in my head and I like so the the diagnosis in the end was actually a relief in a way for me because I was like wow this can be treated like I just got told you're going to do this 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 and this and then hopefully you'll be right (laughs) um so that was actually like quite a relief than having to unpack why I was like creating this in my head so do do you still have pain now yes I do. I um I have my pain is quite complex. They think that I have a well as most pain is. I don't know why I said my pain is complex. Pain is complex. Um they the what what's going on with my body is that I have a mixture of different types. I've got nerve pain from damage during surgery, which is very hard to treat. I have phantom limb pain even though my limb is there which is a bit of a mind trip because I can like, like there's no bone, but I can feel the bone pain from the tumor, but no bone, just metal. I've got the just inflammation pain because there's so many foreign materials in my body. My body's constantly trying to push it out. So they had to cement the prosthesis into the top of my femur and then my tibia. It's like full on cemented in there, but my body's still trying to be like, no, get out. We know that you're not a part of like you're not meant to be in here mm. so it's constantly inflamed 
And then because this was so long ago, I also have remembered pain. We're not even sure if the level of pain I'm experiencing is correct or if it's just that I've been in pain for so long that my brain's rewired to still send those pain signals. It's made up from a lot of different things. And that also refers into my body as well, like up my back and my neck, because the prosthesis weighs five kilos more than the bone would. So if you imagine just walking around with like five kilos strapped to one side of your body and just like how everyday activity sort of gets a bit wonky because of that. A funny example, the the first time I found out about it, I was in a swimming pool. Like up until then, I didn't notice any difference because I, because the muscle was gone. I had to like rework everything, learned how to walk again. And I was in a pool as a part of therapy and I was just trying to float on my back And I kept flipping over onto my stomach because one leg weighed more. And I was just, I found that really funny. I was like, dad, look, I can't balance. I was like, flip, flip. Wow. I can relate to a little bit of what you just said there um, with the the phantom pains and things like that. Mm. I am not so much now, but I remember when I lost my leg, I had an event where I woke up in the middle of the night and I needed to go to the bathroom because I was busting. And yeah. I got out of bed and forgot that I didn't have a leg and I went whack straight on my stump on the floor, Ouch. screaming like anything. <laughs> we go yeah. and then laughing afterwards, thinking what a bit of an idiot I was and all that. But, yeah, yeah, I can totally understand where you come from with phantom pain and I can also understand what you mean by it's a lot more heavier than your other mm. leg. I've always said that my prosthesis is um a lot more heavier by, I don't know, a kilo or so. And I've always questioned that. And when I went to the limb centre and inquired about that, I found out that, yeah, I was right, that it is mm. a little bit more heavier. So I've always felt like I've had to do a lot more harder work to make my leg move. But, um, yeah, wow. Can I ask, um, do you take any kind of, pain relief for your pain anything really you know like um natural or not natural that kind of might help with any of the relief that you get I've tried so many things through the years I've had a quite a horrible experience with opiates as lots of people in chronic pain have the same doctor that told me that I was addicted to opiates and refused to do the x-rays or anything like that I went back to her when I was in remission because she was the only doctor in the re- in the area that bulk billed and I just couldn't afford to pay weekly doctor's appointments on top of all of my other medical bills. I was on the disability pension, but it just didn't cover all the support that I needed at that time. Every time I came in with a complaint, she would just up my medication. So I ended up on 150 milligrams a day of OxyContin which is, I don't know how to compare that for people that haven't been on pain meds, but it is so much. (laughs) Like after my surgery, I guess a good way to say like after my surgery, which was an intense surgery, I was on 15 milligrams morning and night. So 30 plus some breakthroughs. So maybe 50 milligrams a day post massive surgery. And then I was on 150 years later, um, which was not necessary. It was just 
she didn't refer me to a physio. And so like she could have said, like, go to a hydrotherapy pool. But instead she was just layering up the medications. Anxiety came in. She gave me benzos. She didn't put me onto a psychologist. So I, I was turning into a drug addict without meaning to. I was getting addicted to substances. And now, now I've lowered so much over the last five years I've been focusing on reducing. Um, and now I'm on, I take 30 to 35 milligrams of Oxycontin a day. Most of my benzos are gone and it's not a daily use. Cannabis has been very helpful. Unfortunately, it's still not legal, but my doctors support me with this. CBD oil has helped me get off two of my strong benzos without withdrawing, which was amazing. CBD oil has been fantastic. I started to use THC and CBD from diagnosis. It was recommended to help with chemo and things like that. Other than that, it's the sort of, I've tried other pain medication, like nerve pain medication, like gabapentin and pregabalin. It's been a long journey with different medications. Wow, it has. Um, I'm a huge advocate for um, cannabis use. Yes. And I believe it should be legal. I'm not surprised by the experience you've had with a doctor like that. Mm -hmm. There are so many doctors out there that just seem to think that they don't really sit down and listen to the patient's problem. They seem yeah. to tend to go, right, okay, here, take this, you know, next, next, next. And, like, I understand they may be busy, mm. but they just seem to think that you're a number now nowadays. Yeah. And they just seem to think that the only kind of solution to the problem that they sometimes hear is, bulk up the pain relief or bulk up this or bulk up the antidepressants and things like that when in actual yeah. fact they should just sit down and actually really listen to a patient and really get to understand what's going on yeah thank you for sharing that that's wow yeah crazy i i'd love to um skip the conversation a little bit and, and you yeah. mentioned um you mentioned earlier you touched on around love and, mm -hmm. and not allowing loving. And yeah. I'd really love to hear um, about your journey with Polly. Um, yeah. How you came to, to, to be Polly. Yeah, um, that's it's it's quite a journey, isn't it? Starting at 19, being like, I will not let anyone love me. And now I'm just like, all the love is great. <laughs> Skipping back a little bit, once I went into remission and things were looking okay, I started to go on to dating sites again and put my like dip my toe in the water I guess and see how I felt about that and over the years as I got further away from my chemo finishing date and the chances of my cancer returning decreased I allowed myself to love more I think I was about 24 was when I had my first open relationship I'd been in a closed relationship before that and it was beautiful and she really helped me through a lot of my concerns about having people love me and maybe die on them. The thing that I have had from all partners, like I've warned everyone, like I come with like a little disclaimer <laughs> that like I say, like this is what I've been through. If my cancer comes back, I've got a 7% survival rate at best, plus the late effects is what's most likely going to get me. But, but everyone has sort of just said, like I've, I've, I've given them time to think about it and they've all just come back and said, look, this could happen to anyone. We could all die 
at any time. Every day that I could spend with you, loving you and being loved by you is worth it. And hearing that over and over from different people has just made me relax more and just being like, I'll just let them decide. I'll let them know so everything, nothing comes as a shock and they can step out if they want. But everyone's been really positive. My first poly relationship, or it, we, we called it open at the time. I didn't want it. I was resistant to it, but I basically wanted to still be with this person who said that that's what they needed to be happy. They said, I can stay with you and we can be exclusive, but I won't be at my happiest. So we had a lot of, a lot of discussions around that and we sort of put some boundaries in place because it was my sort of first time, just little, little things that made me feel safer, general things like must use protection. Like, let me know where you're going so I know that you're safe. Just things like that that helped relieve my anxiety. And then over the years from that relationship to the next, it was also an open relationship. And now in the relationship that I am now, we are we call ourselves Polly and we can be open completely. And it's incredibly beautiful. My partner is Amara and they are an, such an important person to me and they help me so much. It's been their first poly relationship with me, but they knew that they were poly in the past, but their ex wasn't and they just didn't have anyone to experience it with. So it's been really beautiful going through this together in a healthy way, whereas my last two relationships, it helped me get to the point now that everything can be healthy and talked about. That's beautiful. Okay. How long have you been with your child partner? So we met just over two years ago and we had a connection straight away, but both of us had just come out of a bad relationship, not just, there'd been quite a time period. When we met, we were both very much no relationships. We're just going to be friends. And I think it took about six months for us to admit to each other and our, to ourselves that we, we'd fallen for each other very hard, but we were so reluctant. <laughs> Isn't that the way though, when as soon as you don't want a relationship or think that like, that's not it, then like, here comes someone that just breaks down those walls and is willing to do whatever it takes to make me feel safe and loved. So it's been officially, we got together. It's only been a year and a half officially. That's really, yeah. yeah. Cool. In that time, we had a relationship with someone else. We are in a triad for a while, and that was really beautiful as well. And that was a really beautiful experience to have. I'd mm. never been in a triad relationship before, but having two partners, like three people that all love each other, it was so special and it was magical, really. Like it didn't end well, unfortunately, but when – The times that it was working, it was just such a fantastic feeling to like watch both of my partners be together, just like cuddling or watching TV. And it was just so heartwarming. And if you told me five years ago or like seven years ago that I'd be like doing this, I'd be like, no, I can't. But so much of it I've realized was society, society's expectations on what relationships should be. And once I started to think about that and think about what actually fit for me, I could break them down and be like, well, actually, no, I I know that my, like over time I've learned to know that my partner isn't going to leave me for someone else. They can go on a date and come back to me and still we can talk about it and have fun about like, and be like, oh, like get all excited for each other. And it's just so beautiful. Yeah, it is. It is very beautiful. My, um, 
partner and I have been together for 18 years and wow. um, I love him with all my heart and soul and um, mm-hmm. will continue loving him with all my heart and soul. And uh, we uh, have um, always talked about the idea of um, polygamy and the mm-hmm. idea of uh, uh, doing a kind of a triad uh, relationship. We've met some amazing people along the way. Uh, yeah. Like you say, we've even had our first threesome together for the first yes. time, which was, I think, two years ago, I think it was. And I can understand what you mean by, um, it, I guess it's a little bit different, but I can understand what you mean by watching your partner enjoy the company of someone else. And uh, mm. when the experience that we had, I had the biggest smile on my face. Yeah. Sitting there watching my partner enjoy an intimate moment with this lovely man that we had met. And then him looking up at me and smiling like he was a kid in a candy store. <sighs> and then checking in on me to make sure I was okay. And I was yes. uh, just open with joy. And then him grabbing me and then pulling me in to enjoy <laughs> the intimacy with him and this lovely gentleman that we experienced the moment with. So, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's, a, it's truly special. It is indeed. Do you find, Luke, are there any ways in which your disability presents itself in your relationship? Yeah, it's, it is hard because, like, for one thing, so with relationships and just sex in general, it causes issues. Well, not issues. I, I, issues is probably the wrong word. It's just things that I need to bring up and mention. I guess like the little disclaimers that I give people <laughs> before we date and things like that. With relationships, it's it's tricky because quite often I need help with things. So my although my leg looks like a real leg, I can I can only bend it just past ninety degrees. It hurts a lot to kneel on my knee. Anything that involves sort of like the rocking of the knee, like doing vacuuming or sweeping or bending down to like clean the bathroom floor, it's sort of like I need a carer always. And that was a bit of a tricky thing to get my head around because diagnosed at 19, I was like I'd already been living out of home since I was 17 and then having to come back and move into home and do move back into my parents and be reliant on them and now sort of be reliant on my partner to do some of those things. But we've we've found a real nice balance. Like I like to cook and that's something that I can do because everything's at – there's not much bending involved in cooking. If, if my partner Amara just brings the ingredients out of the fridge and puts them on the bench, then I can chop them up, everything I can do. So we've sort of found ways that like I can feel – productive and as though I'm helping and I'm doing my part in creating a nice little life together and not put everything on them. Being a burden has been something that's been in my mind, even though everyone says that I'm not. It's my my brain still says, well, yes, I am. I should be able to do this. Thankfully, I've had incredible partners that for the majority have, have understood that this is something that I need. It's not that I'm lazy. It's just that I cannot do it or some days days I can and then some days I can't because the pain's worse. How was the dating the dating experience for you, you know, back when you started dating? So just being in remission? Yeah. Very daunting. 
I was on steroids as a part of my chemotherapy treatment. So I've found that people either lose a lot of weight or gain a lot of weight during chemotherapy. And I, when I was diagnosed, I made a joke to my best friend at the time. I'm like, well, at least I'm going to get skinny and look like hot <laughs> just to try to keep, like I joke through things like this. And then it turns out that I put on a whole lot of weight because I was on steroids and the way that that affected me was that if I didn't, if I wasn't full, if my stomach wasn't full, then I felt nauseous. So I was just constantly eating to stop myself from getting the chemo nausea. So I put on, when I was ready to date, I was, I was bald. I was the heaviest I had been. I had just spent a year in a hospital on and off. So I didn't really know how to socialize with people that weren't possibly dying. That was, it was a big adjustment period. But I've, I luckily I picked lovely people and over time I just got more comfortable within myself and just trusted other people more mm-hmm. instead of assuming what they can handle and putting limitations on them. I'd let them decide. Were there any horror stories? I probably, <laughs> my take, my brain se- so it seems to block those out I did have a great night though that I well during treatment I went out to a bar with a friend and we were just we just wanted to go and have like like a mocktail together just feel like we're out doing something like she was she's not a cancer uh, patient friend she was a friend that I had before treatment and we're just like yep let's just go to our favorite bar and enjoy being out and these two gorgeous French men came up and started to talk to us And we ended up going home with them and I had this beautiful one night stand with one of them. And this was the only sexual encounter that I had during my treatment. And because we knew it was going to be a one night stand, like we talked about that before doing anything, like we weren't going to exchange numbers or anything like that. I was just like, perfect. This is great. I could like pass away next week and he'll never know that's excellent it made me feel comfortable enough that I could still enjoy that and we had like a really lovely night together where he kissed my bald head all over and just made me feel like a sexual being again for some reason yeah horror stories yeah I'm not I've I've been really lucky apart from a few bad relationships with dating, I've been incredibly lucky. I'm a good judge of character, I think. Cool. Can I ask, during any of your relationships with intimacy, you were mm-hmm. talking a little bit about intimacy and explaining to your partners about, you know, positions and things like that. Yeah. Um, around intimacy, where I'm getting with this is that with me, sometimes with kink, for me, like slogging and things like that, when I mm-hmm. space out, it actually makes my pain go away a lot more sometimes. Do you have that feeling? Yeah. Do you get that feeling at all when you're in that kind of a, a comfortable, safe space and doing kind of the kink that you like? Does mm-hmm. it help with the pain? Does it help with the, you know, that kind of thing? Yeah, it, it really does. I think because there's a aspect of control with that sort of pain, like I can, obviously it's very consent based, that sort of play. So as soon as I've had enough, I like if the pain gets too bad, I can say stop and the pain will go, depending on what sort of way we're inflicting pain. 
<laughs> Sometimes it can take a bit to die down, but the peak of the pain will go. So it's a great way to get to feel like I'm in control of pain. And it also gives me a positive association with pain as well, like particularly biting. I don't know why, but that was like I realized that, yeah, a few years after I went into remission that like I, I never liked to be bitten during sex before I was sick. I wanted it all to just be like soft and passionate. And now like, yeah, that sort of thing is just, it helps. It helps a lot. It, it, it helps me get more in the moment as well and less out of my leg and thinking less about it. It helps in so many ways. It's exploring the kink scene and the like open sex parties and orgies and things like that has been a wonderful experience to over the years to open me up again that's really cool yeah I guess one thing that I found tricky though that I think you were touching on is that if someone doesn't know about my leg then we can be like getting all hot and heavy and then they'll start to like take my pants off and then they'll see the scar and the indentation of where my muscle was and that if they don't already know that I was sick that can prompt a conversation at a not very great time for me because <laughs> it's not what I'm thinking about at all when someone's undressing me. I've got to the point where I'm very comfortable with my leg. I'm proud of my scar and I almost forget. Like I feel like everyone has this with their leg. Like I'll see someone sit down and put their leg right under them and sit on their leg. And I'm like, oh, my God, how are you doing that? I'm like, oh, wait, no, it's just me. Well, it's not just me, but like <laughs> I forget that other people don't have it too. So there's always a, a moment where I have to like stop and explain like what my leg can do. It's like you can move me like this, but if you pull me like if you pull my leg too far, then that can result in a hospital trip <laughs> um, quite easily. And just, yeah, things like that can be a little bit awkward when having sex with someone for the first time. Yeah, touching on that a little bit, I want to quickly just ask, have you ever had any positive or negative experience in the queer community with your leg regarding that? I myself have had some some negative experiences of explaining to some gay men about my leg being very, very hard for me, but I have found in the kink community a very positive experience. They just are very welcoming and very, they don't really care. They actually are constantly always asking, you know, what can I do to make you more comfortable, things like that. So can you, yeah, yeah just touch on that a little bit? Yeah, the, the kink community is fantastic for that. I've never had any negative reactions. I've had some sort of shocked reactions, and then, like, if particularly if we have to go into the cancer story, it can be a bit tricky because, like, it's just it's it's something that I'm very open to talk about, but it depends on the time. But in the kink community, it's been amazing. I remember I was at my first orgy, which happened at Confest, which is a festival that everyone should go to if they can when festivals are allowed. It happens in um, New South Wales over Easter. I've been going since I was a kid. My parents used to take me and then now I go again as an adult. But, yeah, I went to my first orgy there and I didn't have sex with anyone, but I had this beautiful time where I just, I was with my partner at the time and he just sat behind me and just, it was just in this, like, a tent, a, a huge, 
sort of like dome tent that had these little separate zip zip up like a little zips you could go through to like mini rooms to have like little private rooms other than that we're all just in one big room together so I had my partner behind me who was who had his arms around my waist and I was just leaning back on him and basically I just had people coming up to me asking like hey is it okay if I do this like is it okay if I like stroke your body there was two workshops leading up to this orgy it was mainly for first time people there was very much consent was as it always is was really reinforced so everyone everyone would ask and then I had this man who I think was like probably in his 60s or 70s come up and he's like hey is it okay if I join you and I was just like yeah sure and he's like oh I can see that you've got a scar on your leg that looks like it would be painful do you mind if I give you a massage and I was just like what like yes of course that sounds amazing wow um and it really was like everyone was just like I just I didn't move I did nothing I just sort of lay there I like leaning on my partner I shut my eyes and I just had I think there was about eight different people around me I just had hands stroking all over different parts of my body and I didn't know whose hands were whose and it was just like being worshipped by a group of strangers and yeah that sounds absolutely amazing and so beautiful wow it really it really was it wasn't what I was like when I thought of orgies in my head I was like there has to be sex involved but there doesn't like that was such an intimate interaction that I had with every single person and some people I might like I, I probably wouldn't even recognize them if I saw them on the street again because for the most of it I had my eyes shut and I was just in bliss zone just enjoying the sensations it was wonderful I think the kink community is so the and particularly I I don't know I don't I've only really had experience with the queer kink community but I feel like everyone is just like a little bit more switched on in those settings very cautious of making sure that everyone is feeling respected and not being pushed in any way that they don't want to be it's how it so, should be. So, yes, I, yeah, it's great. Yeah. yeah. It's been had, really empowering. Yeah. Have you had any negative experiences in the queer community at all? No. No, even, like, because quite often I'll need to go out on crutches because, like, if I, if I want to go, I really love to go to see, like, to drag events and anything live, like burlesque, live music, drag, circus, whatever it is. I love to be there and I love to be front and centre. So I'll take my crutches along with me. And everyone's just been really, I guess, a bit, like, more protective. They see me in the mosh pit and, like, people will form a little ring around me to try to, like, help me. I've, like, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky, I think, with not having... Yeah, we've just been around really good people who understand. Like the worst thing is, I guess, if someone gets a bit pushy to ask my story and I'm not in that zone to to share it. Like if I'm out having fun, like as I said, like about 99% of the time I'm happy to talk about it. Like, but people will come up and be like, oh, well, like why are you on crutches? Did you fall down some stairs when when you were drunk or did you trip over or like they'll make a joke and then I feel really awkward because I have to be like, uh, no, I had cancer and they had to remove half of the inside of my leg and then that, like then there's like this shock on their face and then they get really awkward because they were joking about it 
And I like, and then it's like, oh no, this is something really serious. But no, I, I've been lucky. I've been very lucky. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, there's so many, so many questions to ask. I'm interested to also know your gender identity and has that been a journey for you as well? Definitely. With gender, like I, so currently I am one and a half weeks on low-dose tea. So I'm still identifying as non-binary. I, two years ago, actually, when I met my partner, like I, I never really considered that I could be non-binary before. I don't know why. Maybe I guess I just didn't, I hadn't heard about it that much. I actually met my partner at a funeral, which is a very odd place to meet someone, but it just shows that love can be anywhere. <laughs> I was there to support someone that I was sort of dating at the time and her friend had died and my current partner was there because because they were also friends with this beautiful woman that passed away. Amara asked us both, like, well, there's like well, the, the, the pronoun conversation was happening, the pronoun check-in was happening, and everyone was like, oh, yeah, like they, them, she, her, he, him, and then it got to me and I was like, I didn't respond. My brain was like, you can see what I am. <laughs> like, and I identified as a woman at that point. I just like had everyone look at me just like waiting for me to respond. I just said nothing because I'm like, isn't it obvious? And then I thought about it. I'm like, hang on, there's so much more to this than I realized. Growing up, I felt like a tomboy. I loved to be outside in nature. I grew up with no electricity in of the forest. Just So I spent my nights after school just exploring the forest or reading books. So that question just really opens up like, well, actually like, no, what do I, what do I feel? What do I resonate most with? And I, I started to read up about non-binary and research and all the different, uh, is, it, is it sub-label, the things that fall under the non-binary? I forget the term for it, but things like gender fluid, gender queer, I started to learn about all of those. And then as I was reading it, it was just like light bulb moment after light bulb. I was like, yes, 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 this is me, this is me, this is me. Everything was clicking. So then I, then a couple of weeks later, I, I asked Amara to start using they, them pronouns with me and also to call me, to, to see how I felt being called Luca. So they, they were the first one to call me Luca and I loved it. And that was two years ago. And now since then, I've, I've spent about a year or so thinking about testosterone and I found out that low-dose tea was a thing, which I never knew. So I thought that you basically had to go in, get an injection of full-dose testosterone and that would last 12 weeks. And I was like, wow, that's really daunting. That's a long time to just have like to ride it out if it's not something that I'm sure about. But I was curious enough that, it, I was just like, I wouldn't be thinking about it this much. Like, I don't think that, like, cis people think about, like, what would what would I do on testosterone, like, every day? So I, I started on a low dose, and that's been, it's like, already emotionally I feel better. I still identify as non-binary, but I guess, like, now I say sort of more trans non-binary or gender fluid. Like, the other day I put on a dress and put on makeup and run around the front yard because I wanted to be a pixie and my partner gave me some wings, like some big beautiful fairy wings that I was flapping around and I'm just, like, embracing, like, the goddess within. And then, the, like, the next day I'll be binding and dressing as, like, mask as possible or just feeling, like, 
yeah, it's it's been it's been a journey, and I'm still on it. I even had a top surgery consultation this week, which was really exciting. My initial top surgery consultation. I feel, I just feel like everything's falling into place, and I'm finding myself <laughs> after a long time. So very grateful for. That dressing up in a dress and walking around in the garden with fairy wings sounds so cool. If I had the chance, I would have probably joined you in a dress yes. with fairy wings and you ran around as well. That's a it was very thing. freeing. I um, can relate to the uh, non-binary thing. I think I've only yeah. just started to identify that more in the last couple of years myself and struggled with the fact that of my identity with that. But I also find strength and it, especially in my strength and my feminine side, as well as my masculine side, and acknowledging both. And I think it can be a very beautiful and very powerful thing to have. And I wish more people in the world could embrace both sides of their masculine and feminine qualities. I think it would be, um, yeah, it'd be a beautiful place. Yeah. I agree. It's got, it's even gotten to the point where like, I'm just, I'm just like, what is masculine and what is feminine? Like, I'm just confusing myself so much. I'm like, I'm just me. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. but it's been, it's been wonderful. I, yeah, it's, it's great that you've been on that journey too. I think that like, as more people look, hear about it and read about it, it just seems to click for a lot of people. And it's, yeah, lovely. Yeah, it does indeed. Can I ask, Luca, do you have any questions for us? Huh, I probably should have thought of some. I don't know because you've, <laughs> you've, you've both told me a little bit about yourselves in the pre-interview interview, just getting to know each other. I don't know. I, I guess like I just wanted to say I really love what you're doing with this podcast. I guess like why, why did you decide to do this? I know that you've both got disabilities, um, so obviously it's something that, is close to both of your hearts. Did you just feel like that there wasn't enough information about this out there? Like what led you to do the podcast? Yeah, um, I myself wanted to do this because I wanted to bring awareness around disability, sexuality and kink and um, also relationships. I met Oliver at a a wonderful event in Sydney. Uh, It was a disability and event and I I went away after that event going wow yeah this is really cool and then I met Oliver at a couple of other other events later on and at at an event where my partner and I had the threesome and um yeah and we just really clicked Oliver and I and I can't answer for Oliver, but for me, I um, I just wanted to just to say to people, yeah, okay, yes, we have a disability, but we also have desires, we have wants, we have needs. You yeah. know, we want to fuck, and yeah. we want to and we want to fuck whoever we want with consent, yeah. and yes. um, and we love kink, and we love to be whipped or spanked or beaten or flogged or have sex yeah. toys done on us. And even though we may either be in a wheelchair or have many kind of visible disabilities, we still want this and we still desire it. And we are human beings that want needs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. For me, I I really wanted to do this because I felt that 
there wasn't enough of a voice, particularly in Australia. I, I yes. feel I feel they're they're a growing tribe overseas, particularly in, particularly in Europe and the US mm-hmm. around these topics. I didn't feel that there was enough voice in Australia. So I um, I agree. Yeah. So it was really about wanting to, you know, have the, the issues um, front and centre uh, here yeah. in Australia. Because I, I know I know there were plenty of of people, you know, like minded people like yourself, but yeah, just didn't have a platform to express themselves. Yeah, no, it's it's so true, and it's. Well, it's one of the reasons why when my friend told me that it had been interviewed for this, I was just like, wow, that sounds so interesting. And then I was like, would you like me to put you in contact? I'm like, yes, please. (laughs) I guess something that I haven't mentioned that I like to mention just before my brain forgets it (laughs) again is that I really, for me at least, being a cancer survivor from a rather young age, people forget. People seem to think that now that the cancer's gone, that everything's okay. I just wanted people to sort of check in on their survivor friends because I don't know like how everyone feels about it. But there's like, and I I don't like like different treatments for different cancers, but like with the long term effects, people just seem to think that it's gone, so I'm okay, and that's not the case. And like I wish that I was, and like I'm still happy. Like I live a happy, full life, but it does come with these complications along the way of like yeah, of pain. Of uh, I'll need I'll need to have this surgery done again, which is gonna I'll have to relearn to walk again. It's gonna be a two year recovery, so that's sort of like hanging over my head because we we don't know when. It's just sort of when this. It's one of the. I guess downsides of having this surgery is that like like anything mechanical, it's only got so many turns in it. It can only do so much before it needs servicing. So yeah, I just wanted to like even though like I seem okay, like there's still there's still big risks that come with like having treatment at a young age and it's actually quite interesting that it's happening this month because this month is September is actually Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And I, I love that we're recording this in September because not many people know that. I guess you two might, but like, do you know, do you know the awareness color, the awareness ribbon for childhood cancer? No, I don't. And to be honest with you, I did not know anything about it, Luca, until you actually, oh, wow. until you actually mentioned it. Um, yeah, so, see, that's yeah. how. That's how yeah. little known it is. Like even like cancer survivors like themselves don't know that this yeah. is happening. And that's just mm-hmm. such because it, it's just such a important topic. People shy away from childhood cancer because it's scary. It's no one wants to think about their kid having cancer. Everyone, like, I think a lot of people have the mentality that won't happen to me. That won't happen to my kid, mm-hmm. but it does. I'm not sure of the Australian facts, but in the US, like every every five seconds a kid is being diagnosed with cancer. It's the number one killer of kids and it's the lowest funded form of cancer research. It goes into pediatric cancers and there are so many pediatric cancers. So like basically I think 
Like people will spend more on coffee in a week than goes towards cancer funding for children. And it just blows my mind. Like these kids are our future and the treatments that we have, particularly for my cancer, which is, yeah, a young person's cancer, like it's from the 50s and the 70s, these chemotherapies that were being given. There needs to be more done. There needs to be more awareness. Yeah, gold is the colour for childhood cancer, I was by the way. Ask, I was just going to ask you after you, um, yeah. My little tangent. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what colour was it? So it's gold, is it? Gold is childhood cancer awareness. So the pink ribbon is very visible, which is wonderful for yeah. breast cancer. Um, but not many people know that every cancer has got an awareness ribbon. So I really want to get gold as well known as pink. Because breast cancer is, um, this is saying nothing about how important breast cancer research and awareness is, yeah. but it just, it just speaks to the strength of, of these ribbons, colors, like, like the impact they can have. Cause like I'll see a pink ribbon on something and I'm more likely to buy it because it's going to have money going towards breast cancer. I would, I would really love gold ribbons to be placed on things so people can think, be like, Oh, okay. This is pediatric cancer and. So people can help in those little ways that add up Yeah. if everyone knew. Well, thank you for letting us know what it's all about and sharing that with our audience on that. Yeah, no worries. Uh, yeah, I did not know that until today. So it's something that I've learned. So thank you. No worries. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's it's just like a mission to, of mine to just sort of spread the yeah. fact and try to stop people from closing their eyes and shying away. I know it's scary and that it's terrifying and you don't, like no one wants to think about it, but it has to be thought about if like if we want to change, then people need to have this on their minds and be doing anything that they can, whether it just be like what we're doing right now and just chatting yep, about, totally about I totally it. Yeah. Are, are you involved with any other advocacy? Um, I'm a big supporter of this beautiful girl named Lily Bumpus. She's in America and she started Team Lily. She's nine years old. She was born with Ewing sarcoma. She's raised millions of dollars for research. She is just, she was just on the Ellen DeGeneres show talking about it. I do as much as I can to help her and her goals. She always has like, she's like, okay, we have to do this. We have to help all these kids in this hospital get presents. Or I like canteen bandana day is a really important day. I always try to get involved. I've currently been buying my masks from um, canteen because like we need masks and it also goes towards for the people that don't know, Canteen is an organization that supports young people with cancer, whether they have it themselves, their siblings have it, or their parents have it. And it was a huge support to me. I made so many friends there during my time, and it's it's incredibly important. So I, know, I do um, that. Yeah, my my niece actually had childhood cancer, and she was a big user of that service. Yeah. So, yeah. They do really good work. They they really do. It's it can it can really it helps so much, particularly for young people to have someone that is going through the same thing, or mm. even better, they've met someone that survived it, mm. and they can go on these camps and be like, oh wow, like what you did everything that I did and it worked, and look mm. at you now, like you're doing all this. It's so inspiring. Mm. 
so canteen bandana day I always try to get involved in even like if I haven't got much money I just try to buy like one vote by bandana if, if I don't have the energy to actually be out there selling and like this year with COVID I can't actually be on the street selling bandanas so I'm just encouraging people to like if you need new masks canteen's got wonderful ones they meet all the requirements with someone that's got glasses <laughs> they don't fog up I was treated at Peter McCallum Cancer Hospital, which I'm very lucky to be treated at. And the team there was fantastic. And they have a challenge in October called Unite. And I've just signed up to do that. And the idea is that I think it's a couple of weeks in October. I'm not sure the exact time length. I will be walking 60 kilometers to raise awareness and hopefully money for Peter Mac. So I signed up for that this week. And just before I came on here, I got an email saying I had my first two donations to sponsor me. So that was a really beautiful thing. That's amazing. Um, you, you need to share us the link, please, to Luca uh, once you yeah, sure. today. So, yeah, send it via the messenger. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, if, if, if anyone could share, like even just sharing that link would help just like, yeah, getting it out there. Other people are well, like people, any, anyone is welcome to sign up and do Unite. It doesn't cost anything to do. If you don't raise any money, you've at least put some awareness out there into your friendship group, your social medias, you've strengthened your body in a way. And there's different things that you can do too. Like it doesn't have to be walking like, there's different ways you can take part. You can be riding, you can be wheeling, you can be doing whatever, anything that you can do. I'm really looking forward to it. I, it's the first time I've done it. I was like, I saw it. I'm like, this is a walk for Peter Mac. If it wasn't for Peter Mac, I wouldn't be alive or able to walk. <laughs> so I was just like, this is, just, I just got, yeah, it just drew me to it. And I'm now I'm really excited. I'm, I'm like prepping for it and it's going to hurt a lot for sure but it's it's going to be worth it i know it amazing wow thank you luca for such an amazing interview i've um yeah i've enjoyed the time listening to your amazing story yeah thank you it's been uh um obviously we didn't we didn't um know each other very well beforehand but i feel like i know quite a lot about you now so Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for having me, and thanks for having this podcast. It is it's it's so important, and I'm so excited to listen to other people's stories. And yeah, it's just wonderful work that you're doing. And hopefully, after COVID has like settled down a bit, we'll all be able to meet up. We might even see each other at a kink party sometime, and be like, "Oh, hey!" across the room, as people do. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Well, um, once again, thank you, thank you for coming on and sharing your amazing story.